Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to be talking with the authors of an interesting new book, Marriage Markets, How Inequality is Remaking the American Family. First, a comment we received from Kylie in Moab over the weekend by email, upraxcess at gmail.com. She says, big flash flood storm cells came through. I wonder if the contaminants reached the Green River and then flowed to the Colorado. Over 100,000 gallons of oil, water, and chemicals into the watershed. Sad stuff. And then she provides a link to the Salt Lake Tribune. The Tribune article uh, mentions the uh, the spill and then mentions that the leak is the latest example of how Utah's aging oil and gas fields, often equipped with outdated and failing infrastructure, threaten public land, lands. Rather. In March, hikers discovered oil coating a wash near a well of the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. Further searches around the Upper Valley oil field found oil spills in four other washes, evidence of fresh leaks in the field itself, putting this latest story in context. context rather, We'll likely have a future Access Utah program on this. Thanks for sending that in, Kylie. You can respond to this program through the same method, upraxcess at gmail.com. There was a time when the phrase American family conjured up a single specific image. A breadwinner dad, a homemaker mom, and their 2.5 kids living comfortable lives in a middle-class suburb. Today that image has been shattered, due in part to skyrocketing divorce rates, single parenthood, and increased out-of-wedlock births. But whether it's conservatives bewailing the wages of moral decline and women's liberation, or progressives celebrating the result of women's greater freedom and changing sexual mores, Most Americans fail to identify the root factor driving these changes, economic inequality that's remaking the American family along class lines. That's the point of the book, Marriage Markets, How Inequality is Remaking the American Family. The authors are June Carbone and Naomi Khan. June Carbone is the inaugural holder of the Robina Chair of Law, Science and Technology at University of Minnesota. Welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Am I saying your last name correctly? Yes, you are. Okay, great. And we welcome in Naomi Khan, Harold H. Green Professor at George Washington University Law School. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. And uh, June Carbone and Naomi Khan are uh, co-authors previously of uh, an interesting book, Red Families versus Blue Families, Legal Polarization and the Creation of uh, Culture. Some similar themes uh, there. Uh, I wonder if... uh, if one of you, or maybe each of you taking a turn, could uh, start where, where you both do in, in the book. the uh, your, your main characters here, and I think these are real people with different names, uh, Tyler and Lily. Sure. Um, this is June, and um, our, our characters are composites, but they're composites of a couple different people we know. And every piece is based on people we, we know well. And so um, with Tyler, we describe how, you know, after he graduates from college, uh, he, you know, <laughs> never felt uh, that he had that many choices. But by, you know, after college, it's easy to get in a re- relationship. He finds himself with somebody he thinks maybe he's in love with, but finds himself held back by that person. Uh, goes off, on this case, to law school. And very soon in law school, he meets a woman who he feels, you know, some people would say is his soulmate. We describe this a little bit more, a woman who makes him feel good about himself, um, who uh, is somebody he thinks of as a partner, 
who has opportunities similar to his, but who makes him feel successful. If we contrast that with Lily, what happens with Lily, and Lily is somebody we know who was literally crying in my kitchen, uh, but not because she was pregnant and unmarried. Indeed, when I asked her about the father, she was almost disdainful of the father. Uh, no, her, her car broke down, uh, and the car she needed to get to two different jobs. And the attitude we get from Lily is the father of the child not only isn't a partner, but can't be a partner. He doesn't perform that role. She doesn't trust him to do it. And she sees marriage as a threat, not an advantage to her ability to give her a child. And we wrote this book to explain why are these two people, couples, classes, moving in different directions. And in fact, you you write. Oh, let me, if I yeah, go ahead. I could just add that, that it's not that Lily doesn't want to get married. Lily wants to get married as much as Tyler wants to get married. It's just that when Lily looks around her at men who can serve as equal equal partners with her, who can help her raise their child and who could contribute both in terms of caretaking as well as financially, her choices are far more limited than, say, our, our Tyler's. And so she wants to get married. It's, it's not, it's just that she doesn't want to get married to, to the man who made her pregnant. Hmm. So the, the basic interest in getting marriage is, is there. It's just that it's much harder, the obstacles are much higher, and there's, they're, they're operating in different marriage markets. In fact, the, the, the point here is, and I'll just read this paragraph at the end of your, your introduction, uh, Tyler and Lily grew up not too far from each other. They share a German mm-hmm. heritage, descendants of families who originally came from Europe to settle American plains. In another era, they both likely would have remained close to home, and even if one attended college, the other did not, their family lives would not have differed all that much. That's not the case today. That's right. And and I'd add to what Naomi said that the way we describe this is they both have the same idea of what marriage means. They don't have the same expectations about whether they can get there or whether it's necessary for raising a child. So one of the things when I, I talked to Lily is that has come through is she felt abortion was off the table. Um that she wouldn't have considered it because of her religious beliefs. Uh, I don't know that Tyler's ever been with somebody who's had an abortion, but we know friends of his. And when we've heard the stories, it's not, if they got pregnant at the same age Lily was when she got pregnant, their parents would have insisted on the abortion. So in one case, and and, and that is, I think, important in this sense, in one case, Having the child without marriage is still unacceptable. In the other case, it's the abortion that is unacceptable. But once you decide there's no point in marrying the guy, having the child on your own becomes a matter of course. Hmm. Uh, this kind of gets us into your other book, uh, Blue Family, Red Family, the, the, how, mm-hmm. people, how people view marriage. And in this new book, you're saying that uh, the, the, maybe the most important factor to, to see how unequal incomes are affecting uh, different classes uh, is is this marriage market idea. I wonder if we could backtrack and tell us what you found in Red Family, Blue Family, how, how different people, different areas of the country view marriage. Sure. Uh, 
June, go uh, ahead. Mammy, do you want to go ahead? I was going to say, go, go ahead, June. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what we argued in, in uh, Red Families versus Blue Families is we try to describe blue as something new. A lot of people think what marriage is simply doesn't change. A man and a woman together for life. But the understanding of what marriage is as a cultural system does change with time. And what we tried to describe is there is a blue, what we call a blue model in the sense of a modernist model more fully embraced by more liberal parts of the country, is it followed from, the, you know, the, the information economy, uh, the women's movement, the sex revolution, and it basically goes like this. In the 19th century, the big change was investment in men's education, setting up a middle class, a new middle class, driven by educational opportunities for men into the professions and the middle management ranks, and ultimately embraced by the Heartland farmers' wives. Long story. I won't go into it. Uh, in the 20th century, we think the big story is the opening up of new opportunities for women. And so what we described as blue is a system that invests in women as well as men, delays marriage because one of the things about women investing in their own earning capacity is the men and women are moving around, they're moving to different cities, they're uh, trying out different internships, they're not yet ready to start families until later. They want a partner, again, an equal, not simply a gendered relationship. So they marry later. And readiness for marriage then becomes a measure of financial independence and emotional maturity. Uh, the sociologists say marriage is a capstone. We don't really like that phrase, but we do think of it as when your life is settled enough that you have some idea where you're going to end up, you want the partner who is going to get there with you. And that's what we described as the new blue system. But it absolutely depends in delay in marriage, and that means there's going to be a long period of sexual activity before marriage. Well, we do know people who hold out and are virgins at 32. That's not a social prescription. And so the rebellion, the Red Rebellion, um, is driven by uh, the fact that the blue system very publicly conflicts with religious teachings about sexuality. And it takes a lot of discipline not to get pregnant that long. And um, well, there's a huge debate about how important abortion is. The empiricists show access to contraception is the bigger factor. It's a system, a system that delays, invests in education, and then two people who feel they're financial partners as well as soulmates get married later. That group has very low divorce rates hmm. um, and very low non-marital birth rates, I might add. Um, but it's very hard to systematize to the rest of the country and particularly to the working class. So we describe RED as a system that continues to emphasize marriage is the answer, marriage at younger ages. But when you look at the RED areas of the country, you have, including Utah. Utah is fascinating. It's a demographic outlier, but it still has higher divorce rates than you would expect from the um, socioeconomic profile, uh, it has very young average ages of marriage, but low non-marital birth rates. And so we described uh, blue as this new system, red as a traditionalist objection. 
And then we try to show when you then control for a variety of different factors. What you see are high diverse divorce rates and high rates of remarriage or recohabitation, uh, particularly for the white working class emerging as something new in the American landscape and very much associated with red rather than blue. Mm. Yeah, as, as, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, I was going to say, I, let, let me add to that a bit on red. Um, red is a system getting married getting married at a relatively early age and then having children born at a relatively young age. That's a system that works when you have decent paying jobs for high school graduates. But as the economy has changed, what we note in actually in, in both books is that the blue system, the later age of marriage, after you've started to get more settled in a profession or a career is more suited to an economy that more highly values different higher levels of skills and so it's not that the red system it, it, it's we started off trying not to make any any value judgments at all we were just trying to describe different systems different ages why different ages of marriage um, uh, have evolved as they have. And so the red system works well in one economy. The blue system, as we started to look at, at where, where people are more likely to lead blue family lives, seems to be correlated with the technological economy. And as, as June said, Utah is Utah really is fascinating in terms in terms of the state's demographics, but if, if you look at it, even even in Utah, the rate of marriage or the number of women who are married is is down. For example, um, uh, under sixty percent of Utah's women are married, whereas sixty years ago, close to seventy percent of them were. So there's been a decrease. In, in that, the the rate of divorce has increased five times since 1950. Uh, uh, the median age at, at first marriage in Utah is lower than it is for the rest of the country. I mean, there are just all kinds of really, really interesting facts about about Utah. And then just to another thing that, that, that sort of builds on what June was talking about in terms of, of red v. blue, divorce rates in Utah are higher than the national average, but people who live in Utah are also more likely not just to marry, but then to remarry after divorce. Hmm. So Utah, we, we 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 spent a bit of time thinking about about Utah and what's what's different about Utah. There's that wonderful book, what what's the matter with with Kansas? Um, we 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 sort of wanted to look at what's different, not what's the matter, but what's different about different states. Well, and we'll pick that up, and I, I am very curious, and I'm sure our listeners are as well, about uh, you know what's different about Utah in ter- terms of things you're talking about here. We'll continue this, red versus blue, and uh, get into this idea of class and economic inequality. 
Americans don't like to think of class. They, it's the, we have this ideal of a classless society, but our authors are saying that uh, the, those class lines are getting harder with economic inequality, and uh, this economic inequality is affecting different uh, classes differently when it comes to marriage. We'll talk about this uh, idea of marriage markets as well following this break. This is Steve Tracy, bringing more to life. For the first time, adult couples have more parents than children. How do you prepare for this new role? Communication is key to success in any job. The role of caretaker is no exception. Begin with your parents' wishes. Talk to them about personal goals, housing, legal, financial, and medical decisions. Some of these conversations may be easy. Some will be difficult. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, with a changing menu including a Mediterranean salad with artichoke hearts, sun-dried tomatoes, and feta. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about marriage. The book is Marriage Markets, How Inequality is Remaking the American Family. The authors are June Carbone and Naomi Khan, and the book is out just this month from Oxford University Press. And uh, the authors say that uh, there are many factors in uh, changes in uh, marriage in America, but uh, you can't fully understand it unless you look at the economics. And uh, they say marriage should be looked at as a marketplace with economic forces, and uh, that inequality is affecting different classes differently. We're talking about this on the program today, and you're welcome to join our conversation. We hope that you will at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, your question or comment on this subject. We're also on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio, and on Facebook. Uh, so uh, I wonder if we could pick up our discussion uh, specifically on the red family paradigm, um, which is, you say, associated with Bible Belt, the Mountain West. Certainly a large percentage of those in Utah would hold this view, which is that these new family norms, which you're calling blue family paradigm, um, are, are a threat. They view change in moral and sexual values as a crisis. And... Uh, and uh, that uh, divorce is a, is, is a crisis, and uh, marriage is a sacred undertaking between a man and a woman. Um, but, but you're further saying that you can't fully understand marriage today in America without looking at economics. That, that's right. And, what, I mean, we've titled our book Marriage Markets, and we know that the, the very idea, if you put together the two terms, marriage and markets, we know that lots of people are going to say, you can't do that. Marriage is not a market. Mar marriage is based on either 
true love. It's based on scripture. We have all kinds of firmly held beliefs about marriage, but marriage is not a market. And yet we, we argue that most of us who are in marriage markets, we're not necessarily conscious that we're in these marriage markets, but in fact we are. And so if you step back and you just think about the basic concept of a market, most, most people that w- would agree that the supply and demand of various goods are going to affect the price of goods. And if you sort of just take it from there and you look at who is most likely to marry whom, you can step back and start to, start to build a, a marriage market. So relationships, in fact, become a product of who it is you are most likely to want to spend the rest of your life with. And there's been an increase in what sociologists call assortative mating. That is, people who tend to have the same levels of education and relatively similar expectations of income. So there's been a rise in this assortative mating over the past 50 years. Yes, and I'd like to add to that, what we tried to do really hard in the book, and it's kind of complex to explain, is how does greater inequality change people's expectations about relationships? And I'll give you an example of just what what a market looks like. Uh, Our daughter was, um, you know, my husband and my daughter uh, uh, went to Washington, D.C. right after college. And, you know, she met some nice young men like Tyler. Uh, they were in law school. They were had jobs and were thinking about going to grad school. They would go out for a few dates. They weren't serious. It's certainly not serious about her, a recent college graduate who hadn't yet landed anywhere. She quit her job in D.C., moved back to Kansas City, was going to go to cooking school in Spain. Cooking school folded. She started to meet guys in Kansas City and found out, hey, they're really nice. Um, with a college degree and a good job, they weren't ready to go somewhere else. They thought things were pretty good. Uh, they found her, somebody who had traveled around the world and had various ambitions, as um, a catch. You know, somebody who stood out in Kansas City, which she didn't stand out in D.C. in the same way. And the average age of marriage is younger in Kansas City. So she found very quickly she was meeting really nice guys who rather than on the make, both professionally and otherwise, were ready to settle down. A very different feel. And what we try to capture in the book is that's a market. That's a difference in market. And it's a difference in the way men and women match up with each other. There are more women, there are more men these days at the top. The gender gap in wages at the top has increased for all college graduates. Men are outperforming women to a greater degree than in 1990, which a lot of people we know find shocking. At the bottom, there are a whole lot of men, and they're not marriageable. And in the middle are a lot of women and fewer men. And when when there are a lot of women and fewer men, they become like Lily. They do meet guys. They have a series of disappointing experiences, and they give up on the men. Hmm. And so what, what we found, I mean, sort of put it, putting this, this all together, is that women at the highest income levels, in the top 10% of income levels, are the only group in the U.S. 
whose marriage rates have not declined over the past 50 years. In all other groups, marriage rates have declined, and in many ways, marriage has become a marker of class. And so people who earn the most and have the most education are the most likely to be married. So we, we talk about, in terms of marriage markets, marriage has become a marker of class. Yeah, that's that's, uh, that's interesting and, and, and shocking at the same time, I think, for people who at least don't want to accept that uh, there's growing inequality and that that is hardening class lines. Uh, but but that's you point that out in the book. People, Americans, we have this ideal that there are no classes, but mm-hmm. there certainly are. And and this is getting the, the class lines are, are hardening. Yes. All the studies indicate that uh, um, mobility was never all that great, and it's getting worse. One of the things that was startling to us in the book is looking at children. So if you were to pick 1970, and you look at high school graduates and college graduates, and you look at the time parents spend interactive time with children. So my my mom was a stay-at-home mom, but she spent most of the day doing housework. If you look at the time parents really interact with their children, you find in 1970 there wasn't much difference between blue-collar and white-collar parents. Today there's a huge difference. The amount of interactive time a mother spends with a newborn in the first year of life is an hour a day different if she's a college graduate than a high school graduate. It's extraordinary. And um, same thing is true with fathers. All fathers are spending more time with their kids but there is a class gap. And you add that together and you start looking at this and things like educational achievement, uh, um, you know, depression rates, feeling of connectedness to the community, all those things in children now correspond to class to a much greater degree than 50 years ago. Hmm. And that then carries all the way through. It's, it's not just a question of the... Of, of the families at the top, more time being spent with young children carries through. There's more money being spent on children, which, of course, you don't need to spend a whole lot of money on children to raise them, but there are more enrichment activities based on the income of the parents, and that then translates into college graduation rates. And so, well, we might think that once you're in college, it doesn't matter what your SAT or ACT score was, it, what, that, what, what's true is what really matters is what income class you grew up in. And your income class is profoundly correlated with your likelihood of graduating from college. And so if you take two kids with the same SAT scores, one's at the top of the income percentile, the others in the bottom 20%, their graduation rates are incredibly different. The the one from the lower socioeconomic class is probably about somewhere between a third to a half as likely to graduate from college as is the person from the top 20%. Uh, Same thing happens um, with when it comes to, to lower scores. Even kids with lower scores, kids from higher income are more likely to graduate than kids from lower incomes, just taking the exact same scores. So 
the, the, the parental income is incredibly important in terms of transmitting life chances to, to but, children. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about why that's true, uh, because this goes back to red and blue. If you think of blue as a new family system, it's what happened, again, in the 19th century is beginning of the century, the average woman had eight kids, and wealthier people had more children than poor people because they were healthier. But they had eight kids, and they hoped maybe five or six would survive to adulthood, and they didn't invest all that much in the kids because who knew if they'd be around. By the time you get to 1900, the average woman has four children. The wealthier she you know, the more money she has, the fewer children she has, and she invests a lot in each child compared to poorer people. Fast forward to today, and that's on steroids. So elites are having even fewer children, less than two per family. They invest an enormous amount. And that investment isn't just financial. So, you know, I have three children. When the children had various issues in college, whatever part of the country they were in, we were heavily involved, heavily involved in making sure transcripts got straightened out, making sure that, um, you know, when uh, uh, for one of our children there was a, uh, somebody down the hall committed suicide, that there was emotional support and um, efforts in getting through the classes she wasn't passing. Uh, if there was, um, you know, some financial issue, we would intervene and take care of it. But if you, I know a lot of students who are really effectively on their own. And if they hit a rough patch, and these days with college tuition what it is, often that rough patch is financial, they get overwhelmed and they drop out. Uh, the difference in parental involvement at every stage is huge. And the other thing that is off the charts is community. Turns out if a plant closes in a given community, the test scores of the children whose families were not laid off decline. It's a community effect, not just an individual effect. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, if you just joined us, we are talking with uh, June Carbone and Naomi Khan. They're authors of uh, the book Marriage Markets, How Inequality is Remaking the American Family. You are certainly welcome to join this conversation with your question or comment. Uh, here's how you do that. 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. We'd love to hear about your situation. Or you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis gmail.com. And uh, April in Logan has emailed us. Here's the question. The authors have already said that Utah is, quote, weird. Uh, here a, uh, quote, blue marriage would be gay marriage, multiple religions in a marriage, people waiting to marry until they're older. But how does this influx of new ideas of marriage affect our state? What happens when these two cultures mix and collide? Has that been studied? Sure, and let, let me add one, th one thing. I, when we describe blue, blue is pretty much the same everywhere. When we describe red uh, as a more traditional system, red is not the same everywhere. I mean, Utah is not the same as the Bible Belt. And if you look at the mountains of Appalachia, it's a bit different from, say, Dallas. Uh, Redder is a series of traditions rooted in different cultures. What they have in common is an emphasis on earlier marriage and more traditional notions of sexuality. Uh, and then the, the question, what happens when these cultures mix and collide? Has that been studied, April S.? 
Yes, and um, again, uh, I would add something else. I, I did a piece called um, uh, What does Bristol Palin have to do with same-sex marriage? And it looked at things like those uh, referenda in 2004. One of the things that's really interesting is if you wanted to predict the vote against same-sex marriage in 2004, and you looked at a place, you know, in a state where you have counties that are roughly similar, uh, if the county had a recent increase in unemployment or a recent increase in crime rates, the vote against same-sex marriage was higher. What does that have to do? I think it's not just that this blue system is threatening. You certainly see a lot of discussion of Hollywood and the promiscuity as threatening to people with more traditional beliefs. But what's really threatening, it is what's happening to communities all over the country where unemployment is high, the non-marital birth rate is increasing. You look around and you see, as a society, we are worse off. We're losing ground. In that environment, people who have somewhat traditional beliefs want to double down. We want to hang on. We want abstinence only in our schools. We want to make abortion unacceptable. We want to send the message. We need a reaffirmation of traditional values. There's a great new study, and it, 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 it finds the following. Um, People who are more religious and are with somebody who is also religious and they belong to the same church and they go to church together, they have lower divorce rates yeah. than comparable people in the same community who are not religious. More religious communities have higher divorce rates than less religious communities. How do we understand that? If you have a system, and Utah is a good example of that, uh, people who are devout Mormons who are within the community often have high rates of education, low ages of marriage, and relatively low divorce rates. Mm -hmm. But the mm -hmm. communities in which they're in can't make that universal. And those practices, let's double down on traditional values in a failing economy, are destructive. And they're destructive because people get married younger, when they have children, it takes them out of school. There's less educational achievement. And if husband and wife end up moving in different directions over time, one loses a job, the other wants to move to, to take a job in another city, uh, their lives are moving apart, they divorce. It's not a good system. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I go ahead. There, there's, um, there, there are studies. Earlier this year, there was a study that, that received a, a lot of a lot of attention with the, the tagline that conservative Protestants' divorce rates spread to their red state neighbors. And there was a claim, and this is, this is not specifically Utah, but there was a claim that communities with a large concentration of conservative Protestants have higher rates of divorce. But one and now now we're now we're going to back get back to, to Utah. One of the the counters, one of the one of the exceptions to um, communities with higher rates of divorce is looking at how frequently people attend church, and so frequent church attendance is associated with a lower divorce rate. So if you're in a community with in which people attend church 
very regularly. And it's not, not occasional attendance, but, but regular, regular attendance, then that community's norms are going to be, there will be, there will be fewer divorces in that community. We are going to take another brief break. When we come back, more on marriage markets, how inequality is remaking the American family. We have an email that we'll get to from Charles. Thank you, Charles. And we'd love to have your question or comment on this subject. Marriage in America, the authors are saying that we need to take a look at the economics and we need to view uh, this phenomenon of marriage markets and how it's having an effect on what's happening to uh, marriage in America. We're taking a look specifically at Utah as well. So uh, if you have a question or comment, we'd uh, love for you to reach us. And here's how you do that. 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, Utah Public Radio. We're on uh, Twitter as well, at Utah Public Radio. More following the break. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto-Casper. This week, it's a look at one of America's longest-lived food obsessions, fried chicken. Then, ever wonder why the wine bottle looks like a wine bottle? All will be revealed. Join us. That's this week on The Splendid Table from APM. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Utah State University and fellow land-grant institutions are celebrating 100 years of cooperative extension established by the Smith-Lever Act of 1914. The act was introduced to expand the vocational, agricultural, and home demonstration programs in rural America, with its network of county offices delivering educational programs at the grassroots level. Kudos to USU Extension for a century of responding to critical and emerging issues with research-based, unbiased information. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. There was a time when the phrase American family conjured up a single specific image. A breadwinner dad, homemaker mom, their 2.5 kids, living comfortable lives in middle-class suburbia. Today that image has been shattered, due in part to skyrocketing divorce rates, single parenthood, increased out-of-wedlock births. But whether it's conservatives bewailing the wages of moral decline and women's liberation, or progressives celebrating the result of women's greater freedom and changing sexual mores, most Americans failed to identify the root factor driving these changes, economic inequality, which the authors of this new book say it's remaking the American family along class lines. Those authors are June Carbone and Naomi Khan. You're welcome to join this conversation. The book, by the way, is Marriage Markets, How Inequality is Remaking the American Family. Here's how you join us, 1-800-826-1495, or email is upraxis at gmail.com. Here's a question from Charles in Logan. He has a question, is there any trend in Utah's fertility? Is there a, a trend in Utah's fertility? Right. Um, well, I will say that... that um, uh, the Utah abortion rate is lower than the rate nationally. Um, I, the, the Utah abortion rate is 5.4 abortions per 1,000 women, whereas in the U.S. more generally, it's it's yeah, it's triple that. It's 16.9 abortions. Um, 
uh, I mean, I, I can tell you that about um, 10%, more than 10% of Utah women of reproductive age become pregnant each year, and a higher percentage of those pregnancies result in, in live births don't know about the historical trends in terms of fertility, except that, um, you know, the, the, the average size of families in Utah is larger than the U.S. norm. Um, the U.S. norm nationally is 3.25. In Utah, it's 3.65. And I, I, there's just, I mean, Going back to 1960, there's just been a slight uh, uh, decrease in the number of fam in the in the size of each family in Utah. In 1960, the the average Utah family included four people. Um, uh, in today, it's 3.64. So not a, not an incredibly huge change. And uh, Utah, just a quick uh, search. Utah still leads the nation in uh, fertility rate. Uh, you know, which is which is not a surprise. Um, I, I wonder. And I should also say, I mean, Utah, Utah is, uh, I, I, more, uh, lots of families in Utah have, have seven or more ne members compared to the national average. Only 2% of families nationally have more than seven members, and in Utah, 5% do. I, I can say anecdotally, and this is total anecdotally, I'm, I'm seeing somewhat smaller families in, in Utah compared to, say, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, and, you know, a very uh, I, I, I would say we haven't yeah. looked at it really specifically, but um, the, the question that we're asking, I mean, much of our book is really based on what happened before the financial crisis, and we've been trying to update that picture afterwards because after the financial crisis, you know, is 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 a big hit on families throughout the country. So there's no question Utah has had the highest birth rate, uh, highest overall fertility rates in the country. Has that slowed down since the recession? That's the question I'd ask. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's still, you know, at the top. But is it? Uh, I know the average age of marriage, which we were looking at intensely when we wrote Red Families, Blue Families, has gone up in Utah. And the people we've talked to who are concerned about divorce rates thought marrying a little bit later might be a good thing. But that doesn't mean it's going to look like the national average for the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and even in Utah, the median age at first marriage is the lowest for, for both men and women. is the lowest in the country. Yeah. I wonder, we're, we're coming down to the last five minutes or so, um, and I want to get into maybe some of your prescriptions. For, you know, the, the, the trends are very clear. The, there are some problems with... Uh, troubling trends in in marriage. I think everyone could agree. And you're saying that the a, a big factor is the economic factor. Uh, how do we address some of these things? Jobs. You you have decent, stable jobs for blue collar men. Marriage will increase. Hmm. It, it's just that simple. Jobs. <laughs> well. If, if you think that creating jobs is that simple, then yes. Yes, creating more economic opportunities is going to, is, is correlated with, with an increase in the rate of, of marriage. Now, I mean, we have a whole bunch of other, even if jobs don't create, don't get created, we have 
some other suggestions on what to do, mm-hmm. but we do tie marriage structures fundamentally to what's going on with the economy. So, uh, Jobs, I can see how that would immediately affect perhaps uh, the, the lower end of the economic uh, spectrum. There, there are uh, uh, maybe a large pool of men who just aren't marriageable, at least in the eyes of the women. If they had jobs, they, they would become marriageable. You know, we, I, I talked to an anthropologist about this book, and he said, oh, yeah, we found that was true in the Caribbean 50 years ago. Uh, that's what the Moynihan Report is about. Anytime you see a loss of stable employment for men, you see marriage decline. That's easy. And that's true, you know, unless you have the wholesale oppression of women. I think the longer-range issue is gender. And, um, you know, when we, have, we, we get the biggest pushback when we give these talks from university faculties. Why? Because there are a lot more women on university faculties who have men who uh, are stay-at-home dads or partially employed or have reversed gender roles, and it works. Uh, it doesn't work terribly well for men who are in communities where there's a loss of status for the men from not having a job. And so one of the questions is how flexible are gender roles? Right now, one of the differences between the top end and the bottom end is gender roles tend to be more traditional and less flexible for blue-collar men than for white-collar men. But again, one of the reasons is a blue-collar guy without a job uh, loses self-esteem within the community. I mean, loses his own status and self-esteem within the community. And that question, what roles do we have for men who don't necessarily have great skills, is huge second issue that we talk about a lot is transitions. So we have an economy now, you know, the union jobs are gone. You have employers who think that we're the, the right response to uh, an economic downturn, lay people off, maybe we'll rehire them when they come back. You hear a lot of discussion of employers who want people with skills and can't find them. Uh, and the economists say, well, it's because they pay $10 an hour to start for skilled employees. We have a set of policies that have created a labor market with a lot of instability in employment. And that instability, being laid off, trying to find another job, having trouble finding the job, getting a lesser job, is destructive for families. So it's the transitions between jobs for both men and women um, that undermine the family as well as uh, simply, you know, the question of jobs in general. Hmm. Uh, We are out of time. We'll have to leave it there. The uh, book is Marriage Markets, How Inequality is Remaking the American Family. It's just out from Oxford University Press. The authors are June Carbone and Naomi Kahn. Very interesting discussion, and uh, for more, you'll have to go and read the book. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you. Very interesting discussion. Yes. And, and at the very end, I'll say parenthetically, personally, uh, this is another added layer of complication to dating. I'm, I'm glad I've married. I, I, this yeah. is another reason why I hated dating, and this would have maybe driven me out of the market altogether. Um, so uh, thank you very much. Interesting discussion. This discussion can continue online at upr.org, and uh, you can hear this discussion again later today. Uh, Tomorrow, we're going to talk about uh, proposed new uh, FCC rules on net neutrality. How important is the open Internet to you? Uh, What should we do? What should the FCC do? We're going to be talking about open Internet and net neutrality with Jonathan Choate from SD7 Technologies in Logan, and hopefully with you as well, tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Deseret News columnist Steve Eaton. You can start calling me 
the Marathon Man. I've been working out at a new gym in Logan that's owned by Jeremy Strom and Lisa Townsend. I go to a workout until you die class four times a week, and two very unusual things have been happening since I joined. One, as I keep coming back, despite the fact that the workouts I do seem to consistently involve the type of exercise that eventually makes me look as if I've been dropped from an airplane onto the floor. I don't just look like I'm tired and have collapsed, but instead, one gets the impression that it's time to draw a chalk outline around my body. The other very unusual thing that started to happen is that I'm actually losing weight that doesn't come back each weekend. The odd thing about the approach that Jeremy and Lisa offer is that it seems to involve a lot of positive feedback and respect. They look for something, anything they can do or say to encourage people to push ahead and do exercises in proper form. This requires some very impressive creativity on their part when it comes to me. Other than the fact that I have way bigger abs than anyone else in the gym, it would not be easy to find something laudable about my movements when there are movements. Lisa told me on one day, for example, that I'm good at soft landings. I have no idea what this means, but I'm extremely proud of it. Jeremy's specialty is running. He knows his stuff. He was recently flown to the Philippines to train more than 200 trainers on how to get people ready to run triathlons. He's invented his own exercise equipment and has worked out with some very important athletes around the world. He clearly knows how muscles are supposed to work. He's always saying things like, you should feel this in your inside thimbular. If it's hurting your spatula, you're doing it wrong. No one tells him we have no idea what he's talking about or that his exercises make everything hurt. Jeremy said he has long believed he could take anyone, no matter how out of shape, and get them ready to run a marathon in one year. Yes, if he could test out his theory on me. I've always wanted to run a marathon, so I readily agreed. I timed myself the other day, and I'm already able to run one minute without stopping. I know I have potential for Olympic-level performance because a few years ago, I ran a mile without stopping. I remember I arrived at a Utah State University indoor track one day, and a real track coach was there. They were just finishing their workout, so I had to ask him if I could use the track. After he gave me permission, I said to him in my most serious voice, I don't know if you've heard about this yet, but last week, I ran a mile without stopping. Should I be on the USU track team? I don't know. I'm 53. You tell me. He was at a loss for words, and his eyes seemed to be searching me as if he was wondering if I was for real. I pointed at the athletes around him stretching and putting on their sweats, and I said, I mean, tell me this. How many of them could actually run a mile without stopping? He said slowly, oh, I think they all could. And I just ran away, waiting for him to chase me down, but he did not. He was probably tired, and I was very fast. Now I know that running a marathon is not easy. Some of them can be 10 or more miles long, and I'm guessing I'll have to learn to run up for an hour straight without stopping if I'm going to win. I'm going to run the Salt Lake City Marathon next year, and I think there are like 100 people who go to that race, so the chance of me finishing even in the top 10 will be slim. I'm going to go for it anyway. 
I know I don't look like a marathon man yet because I'm roughly 450 pounds overweight, but a year is a long time, and I believe soon I'll be flying down the street so fast you won't even recognize me. After I glide across the finish line, I'll bet there'll be more than one track coach interested in me. I have long hoped, however, to wear a Seahawks uniform, and I think an impressive marathon performance could help make that happen. I don't need to be the quarterback, make $16 million. I just want to play in a position where I won't get knocked down all the time. My jersey will read, Steve, quote, Marathon Man Eaton. But people will probably just chant, The Marathon Man, for short. It all starts now. I'll see you in a year. This is Steve Eaton. Hello, I'm Ross Atkins. Welcome to World Have Your Say. Coming up on Outlook after the news, the Somali journalist who witnessed the murder of his boss. Hello, I'm Steve Evans. Welcome to Business Daily. Coming up, the big fight. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour. The BBC is your gateway to the world, and this is your BBC station. Monday through Saturday afternoons at 3 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio today, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Stay tuned for the Splendid Table coming on on air next. The time now is 10 o'clock.